Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to understand the fullness of your revelation in all the scriptures so that we might begin to know the fullness of your salvation and your glory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. As Christians 2,000 years removed from the birth of Christ and at least 4,000 years removed from the culture of Israel and Judaism, we are most naturally at home in the New Testament rather than the Old but such was not the experience of the earliest Christians. They were steeped in Jewish culture and history, and their only concept of scripture was what we know as the Old Testament. Suggesting to them that somehow the Old Testament was not so important to the message of the gospel would have made no sense at all. And that understanding is all the more so when we read Matthew's gospel. Matthew, after all, is clearly a Jew and he's writing his gospel to Jewish Christian readers. So when he quotes the scriptures, he quotes the Old Testament. And in them he finds the promise of the gospel, the promise of a saviour. And what he finds in the Old Testament are not simply proof texts that Jesus is the Messiah. He finds in Jesus the fulfilment of Israel's history the completion of all God's promises made to Abraham and the people of Israel. And so as we read the New Testament, it's important for us to be attentive as to how the Gospel authors and the New Testament writers use the Old Testament to fill out and finish the story of the Gospel. Consider with me how Matthew does that in the first few chapters of his Gospel. Very clearly in chapter 1, Matthew tells us that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And he confirms that declaration by quoting from Isaiah. He says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And though Isaiah may not have recognised this as a messianic prophecy, Matthew is very clear that the birth of a son called Emmanuel refers directly to Jesus. In chapter 2, Matthew is just as clear that this same Jesus is also a human child. In fact, apart from verse 1, saying that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the rest of the chapter simply and repeatedly refers to Jesus as the child. And once again, Matthew quotes the Old Testament, this time Micah, to confirm that this promised child would be born in Bethlehem. So we read in verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And when you read the two quotes, the impression you get is that they really are clearly about the Lord Jesus. God with us, a ruler among God's people, and the shepherd of Israel born in Bethlehem. But as you read on in the chapter, there are a few more quotes from the Old Testament that are less obviously about Jesus. Matthew uses them not as proof texts, but as types or patterns. Matthew is saying that what happened to God's people Israel is a pattern repeated by Jesus and thereby fulfilled in Jesus. It's a similar sort of thing that the writer to the Hebrews often does. 
So, for example, he, he takes the pattern of Levitical animal sacrifices and he understands them to be fulfilled in Christ. If the blood of bulls and goats can make us outwardly clean, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will he cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? What the Old Testament offers as a copy or pattern, Jesus fulfills as the reality of heavenly perfection. And he does so in superabundance. He doesn't just finish in the, old, in the New Testament what was started in the Old. And Matthew in chapter 2 is understanding the Old Testament in the same way as the writer to the Hebrews. That is, he sees what happens in Israel's experience and he extrapolates and he amplifies that to find God's purposes being brought to completion in Christ. Matthew is doing what Jesus did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. In the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, that is, everything in the Old Testament. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Jesus is saying that if we understand the Old Testament correctly, then we shall find that all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that's what Matthew is now doing as he reads the Old Testament with a mind open to understand the scriptures. He sees Israel's history and he's finding its meaning, its fulfilment and its completion in Jesus. So, for example, from verses 13 to 15, Joseph is warned in a dream to take Mary and Jesus and escape to Egypt, and then to return from Egypt after Herod is dead. As far as Matthew is concerned, this is the fulfilment of the prophecy that he quotes from Hosea, and we read it in verse 15. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, of course, you and I know that when Hosea wrote that, he wasn't thinking about Jesus. He was referencing how God, through Moses, called Israel out of Egypt. So as Matthew looks through Hosea back to the Exodus, he sees a similar pattern in Jesus' early years. Matthew sees that the original Exodus of Israel out of Egypt is repeated and fulfilled in a new way. As far as Matthew understands it, Jesus is the embodiment of Israel itself. Jesus is a new and a better son. As Israel was oppressed in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh, so the infant Jesus became a refugee in Egypt because of the rule of Herod. As Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus passed through the waters of John's baptism. As Israel was tested in the wilderness of Zin for 40 years, so Jesus was tested in the wilderness of Judea for 40 days. And as Moses from Mount Sinai gave Israel the law, so Jesus from the Mount of Beatitudes gives his disciples the true interpretation and amplification of the law. 
Matthew is saying, just as Israel went down to Egypt and then came out of Egypt into the promised land, so God's true son will make the same journey. And that story that Matthew tells is a much bigger story than simply that of Mary, Joseph, Herod and the Magi. But Matthew's not finished yet. He sees Jesus not only as the fulfilment of Israel's exodus from Egypt, but also as the fulfilment of Israel's return from the Babylonian exile and the restoration that Jesus' coming brings to the world. Have a look from verse 16. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What Herod does here, often called the slaughter of the innocents, is hideously evil. And I don't want to downplay that for a moment. But I do want to draw your attention not to the horrendous atrocity, but to how Matthew understands this event and Jesus in the light of Jeremiah's prophecy. So when Jeremiah speaks of Rachel, he's referring to the matriarch, the wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel died, you remember, giving birth to Benjamin. And because of this, she took on a symbolic role for God's people. The rabbis referred to her as the sorrowful mother of Israel for all time. At one point, the prophet Jeremiah himself, like many Judean prisoners, was held prisoner in Ramah, a town about five miles north of Jerusalem. And this was the town where Rachel was buried. It was also a town through which God's people were marched as captives of the Babylonian army in the early 6th century BC. Concerning this event, Jeremiah imagined that Rachel, the sorrowful mother of Israel, would have wept as if alive to see her children as they walked to captivity right before her eyes. Now that's the history and the context of Matthew's quote from Jeremiah. But what does this teach us about Jesus? Is Matthew merely being histrionic by invoking the lament of Rachel? Or is something else happening here? Well, I think there is. I think that Matthew is saying that the tears of the exile reached their climax in the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. And now with the birth of Jesus, the trail of tears is finally coming to an end. Jeremiah ended his lament over the exile by looking forward to the day when Israel will return from the land of their enemy, the day when the Lord will make a new covenant with them and put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And Matthew is saying that with the coming of Jesus, the time of the exile is coming to a close. The tears shed by the mothers in Bethlehem inaugurate the reign of the one who will shed tears of blood for the forgiveness of sins and who will eventually, in the restoration of all things, wipe away every tear. 
in bringing the Old Testament to bear on the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew is making our understanding of Jesus to be far richer, far deeper and far more rewarding than it could have been if we simply read the New Testament. For what the Exodus prefigures, Jesus fulfills. And what the return from exile promises, Jesus brings to completion. If you're thinking, well, that's rather impressive, then I want you to look at the next prophecy that Matthew sees as having been fulfilled by Jesus, because that's rather puzzling. As we read from verse 19, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, what makes verse 23 puzzling is that when you go to the Old Testament, you won't find that quote, at least not written as Matthew would have it. In fact, Nazareth, the town, doesn't even get a mention anywhere in the Old Testament or any ancient Jewish writings. So what's going on? Well, I reckon the way to understand it is not to be looking for a statement from a prophet, but instead to be looking for what the Old Testament as a whole teaches us about God's Messiah. And Matthew references not a quote from a prophet, but the teaching of the prophets. And the teaching of the prophets is that a shoot would come from the stump of Jesse and a branch, or, or in Hebrew, a nazar, from his roots shall bear fruit. That is, from David's royal line shall come a branch, or nazar, who is the Messiah. So what's Nazareth got to do with this? Well, it seems likely that Nazareth was a settlement named by the descendants of David's line returning from exile. And they've taken the name of Nazar and consciously given it the messianic name Nazareth. And to visitors they would have said, Welcome to Nazareth, the city of the branch. And what Matthew is saying is that Jesus came not only from the city of David, which is Bethlehem, he also comes from the people of David, which is Nazareth. Jesus is the branch, the son of David. The fact that he grew up in Nazareth as a Nazarene only emphasises that point. The other interesting thing about Nazareth is its location in the region called Galilee, a region that had a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And that's why later Matthew quotes Isaiah, who calls this region Galilee of the Gentiles. And with so many Gentiles in the district, Galileans in general and Nazarenes in particular were treated with disdain. So when Nathaniel first learned that Jesus was from here, he expressed the sentiment of many and he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Well, he thought not. Nathaniel was looking for the Jewish Messiah, but he certainly wasn't expecting him to come from that region of the world. But Matthew is saying in verse 23, think again. Think about the prophets. Think about this vision that they had of the Davidic king who would rule all the nations. Think of the branch that would come forth as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It is from the Old Testament that Matthew understands the comprehensive majesty and mystery of the Incarnation. It is from the Old Testament that Matthew understands Jesus to be the lowly Messiah, the suffering servant of God, who was transplanted first from Bethlehem to Egypt and then from Egypt to Nazareth. The Messiah comes to take a low place in history with us and for us. Even the town where he grew up, the town that became half his name, indicates half the truth about him. Jesus of Nazareth, though lowly in his humanity, is king of the Jews and thus regal in his majesty. In chapter 1 he's called Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins and being Emmanuel he is God with us. And now in chapter 2 he descends from deity to humanity and is modestly called the child and Jesus of Nazareth. That God should visit the earth in great modesty tells us something important about the doctrine of human nature. What does it mean that Jesus should be called a Nazarene? It means that we should not only emphasise that humans are lost by nature and sinners by choice. It also means that we have been represented in lowliness by Jesus. Jesus is the man for us. And by his incarnation, he teaches us not only what it means for him to be God, but also what it means for us to be human. The incarnation is an affirmation from God that our dignity, our worth, is far greater in Christ than it is in creation. As Athanasius, the 4th century theologian, puts it, he said God became as a man so that we might become as God. Now that is not a formula for our deification, but it is a recognition that what we are is not what we shall be. Though deeply flawed and desperately sinful, we are nonetheless wonderfully loved. And because of his great love for us, he came in humility and poverty to restore us and renew us. This is God's purpose for us, and it shall be the completion of God's work in us. It is a completion that doesn't simply reset us to the pre-fall condition of Adam in the first creation. It is indeed a new creation, a completion that restores us to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It is a, a restoration that recreates us as adopted sons and daughters, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ Jesus the Lord. 
What Adam lost in sin is not merely replaced in redemption. Christ has not simply forgiven our sins, he's restored us and renewed us. He's given us the Holy Spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is God's purpose and our destiny. It's what he promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. It is what he brought to fruition in his birth, to completion in his death, to victory in his resurrection. And he shall bring it to consummation when he comes again in glory to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And because Christ Jesus humbled himself and he did all these things for us, God has exalted him to the highest place and he's given him a name that's above every name. He's given him the only name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so at the name of Jesus, with the shepherds and the wise men, with the angels and the host of heaven, and with a great cloud of witnesses, we bow our knee. And with every tongue we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.